Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. I'm Tasha Anderson, I'm your host today. And today I brought along with me um, another one of my financial-minded friends. And I love hearing different perspectives, especially as it relates to fundraising and the finances, right? Those are two areas that sometimes are very conflicting, but I would like to argue are really complementary and critical to the success of any nonprofit. So David Foster is joining me today. He has lots of numbers behind, or letters rather, behind your name, David. So I think that gives you some street credibility almost immediately, but you're a financial advisor with Gateway Wealth Management. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the do's and the don'ts for development officers. So David, thank you so much for being here and sharing kind of, especially your experience working with both nonprofits and donors. Um, so thank you so much for coming on board today and having this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So David, it's interesting to me how many times I have met development directors that are a little afraid to ask for money, interestingly enough. <laughs> sure. And also how many development directors are are afraid to ask for more money from existing donors, especially large amounts of money. <clears throat> so in that spirit, what would you say, um, or should a development officer or director ask for a specific dollar amount of money? And, and why or why not if you think they should ask for that specific gift? Yeah, so, uh, and this will be a little nuanced here, but in general, I don't really think development officers should be asking for money. They should be asking mm. for impact. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and obviously, it takes money to make an impact often, mm -hmm. but, uh, but the distinction there, I think, is important because I... And to give you just a little bit of background, I, in addition to being a certified financial planner, I'm a chartered advisor in philanthropy. So my specialty and my niche is in working with philanthropically minded clients. Uh, mm -hmm. And and so they are giving away money and they're being asked for money. And so I've, mm -hmm. I've seen this from their perspective, right? And, and so mm -hmm. what I have seen from development officers is proposals asking for a specific dollar amount that appears to their donor, to my clients, to have been pulled out of thin air with uh, mm -hmm. with no connection back to the cause at hand. And mm -hmm. of, of course, in reality, I think a lot of times these dollar amounts are based on assessments of giving capacity that third party data firms have come up with and, and that these nonprofits have bought. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and they come up with that based on various sources of public information. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether those assessments are right or wrong is kind of beside the point because donors aren't interested in giving you money. They're interested mm -hmm. in making an impact. So mm -hmm. I would encourage development officers to frame their proposals in that context. So rather than asking for a specific dollar amount, say, hey, you know, to give you an example, um, there's a, an organization called Meds and Food for Kids that treats mm -hmm. uh, malnutrition in Haitian children. And it mm -hmm. costs roughly 70 bucks to treat one child with malnutrition, mm -hmm. right? So, so mm -hmm. you could say, hey, it cost us $7,000 to treat 100 Haitian children with malnutrition. How many cases of malnutrition in Haitian children would you like to cure, right? So you're not mm -hmm. coming to a donor and saying, hey, uh, let, give us $25,000. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. why, did you, why did you ask me for $25,000? Why didn't you ask me for 30? Mm -hmm. Why did you ask me for 20, right? You're saying you're going to the donor and you're not even asking them necessarily to make a specific impact. You're asking them how much impact that they want to make. Because as, as the fundraiser, you're just not going to have all of the relevant information about their finances to know what is reasonable and what's not. Right. So, so start from a discussion of impact, and then you can figure out the dollars that translate into that impact later. I love that conversation on impact because I think sometimes organizations shy away from that because they don't have that simple, you know, uh, dollar amount impact, you know, 
what we call cost accounting in the financial world, but sure. we don't know how much it costs to do this thing or that thing. And especially if that thing that the donor is appealed to is how we normally think about our operations, right? Or how we think about how sure. we run the organization. So how to take all of this data and all this information, translate in a way that is that is appealing and powerful to, to donors when you have those conversations. Right. But then also I think there's many organizations that I've come across that truly just don't always know their impact. So I love obviously cost accounting as a CPA. <laughs> um, and I really like to know how much does this actually cost us to fundraise sure. for or to perform this service just so um, that we're getting competitive rates on contracts and all these other sorts of things. So for those organizations that have not narrowed down um, some of those key, um, I don't know, impact units, I'll use the word, um, think about it. I think about it. It's really powerful for annual reports, annual appeals. I, I mean, I'm certainly no fundraising expert, but I get a lot, as you would imagine, a lot of solicitation from many nonprofits because I'm involved with so many sure. that uh, I really like to pay attention to how we communicate the impact and how we ask for those dollars to your point, David, without saying, so thank you for meeting with me. Can you write me a check for $25,000? Right. But I will not back down from the statement I made earlier where I said that I think sometimes development directors will meet with individuals and they don't simply ask, are you interested in being part of this? Um, right. You know, is, is there any interest that you have in supporting this or being part of this impact? So um, that I've always found pretty fascinating. Because in business development myself, I have one kind of key thing, always pitch, right? Always <laughs> pitch. So that's like my for-profit world um, yep. starting to blend into the nonprofit world. But in the nonprofit world, how do we always pitch um, to a donor? And, and, and it can be very subtle, right? Um, just sharing your impact and, and what part they want to play on that um, long-term or short-term. Which brings me to my next comment about long-term um, you know, support of the organization and the impact that we're making. It's a really awkward conversation. And I think that's why it's not brought up a lot. Planned giving. Let's talk about planned giving. So these donors that right. have supported you, they they clearly have an interest in what you're doing. Um, and, and you like to think maybe they would consider you on planned giving. Um, how do you broach that subject? Do you think, David, that development officers should be asking their donors directly about their planned giving um, plans and whether or not the organization is is involved in those plans? Yeah, so to piggyback on your comments from before, yeah, absolutely, being direct is is key. Whether whether you are asking for specific dollar amounts or specific impact amounts, you should ask for them directly and unapologetically, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the same thing is true when you're asking donors about their plans for their assets after they die, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of fundraisers are hesitant to ask their donors about their state plans. Cause if you do that, right, you're going to force them to contemplate their own mortality. And since nobody likes mm -hmm. to think about their own death, they're going to clam up and they won't talk to you about any type of giving at all. Right. right? right. Um, and, and look, I'm not suggesting that talking uh, about what will happen after you're dead is high on the list of most people's favorite conversation topics, but right. I have yet to meet anybody who thinks they're going to live forever. So the odds mm -hmm. are good that if you're contemplating asking a donor about their estate plan, they're probably reasonably wealthy and they're probably at least in their 60s. And most people who check both of those boxes have already done some form of estate planning. So mm -hmm. I promise you that asking whether your organization is included in those plans or not will not offend this person in the slightest. I, I talk to my clients regularly about their estate plans because obviously that's, that's mm -hmm. part of my job. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And when I first started doing this 13 years ago, it was kind of awkward, right? But it was mm-hmm. only awkward in my own head. It wasn't awkward mm-hmm. in their head right. because, because right. they expect you to ask for that. Um, and I think one of the reasons that that fundraisers often have a hard time asking for this is because they're afraid of the pushback that that they might get sometimes from donors that will be, hey, well, why do you need to know this? Why is that any of your business? Mm. Mm. And having a good answer to that question is really important. And the answer comes back to what we talked about with the first question, which is impact, right? It mm-hmm. is important for your nonprofit organization to know how much money they should expect to receive from somebody, particularly if that amount of money is a significant amount relative to that organization's budget, right? So if you get a $10,000 bequest and you're a $10 million organization, no big deal. You can absorb that. No problem. You don't really have to spend a lot of time thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're a million dollar organization and you get a half a million dollar gift, well, that's potentially transformational and it's a huge mm-hmm. opportunity. And if I'm a donor, I want you to know about that because I want right. you to be prepared for it. I want to know what you're going to do with it and how you can use it to grow the organization or further the mission, right? And, and so mm-hmm. that's the answer to that question. Why do you need to know about this? Because we want to make sure we take care of your gift and, and that it makes the impact that you desire th- that you desire for it. Well, that's so interesting because you hear all of these stories and I have a case study of my own, a client of mine this past year, they were a little less than a million dollars on an ongoing basis and all of their funding was primarily through events, right? Mm -hmm. And as we know, during this past year, it was very challenging for those organizations that that were solely dependent on funding for their special events. And they, so like I said, they're a little less than a million and they received something like a three and a half million dollar bequest that included, that, that they had no idea was coming and they inherited property and expensive personal property like jewelry and this organization was left scrambling asking me you know what do I do with this jewelry I'm like we are not a jewelry dealer we are not taking possession (laughs) of jewelry right so um and other really weird things that may not necessarily be in your gift acceptance policy and fortunately it's a good problem to have but you're hearing more and more organizations that are the recipients and, and 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 i think it's just it's a great you know news story right you're seeing all these organizations that are all of a sudden receiving some sort of windfalls from these really wealthy donors and you've seen so many different statistics about the transfer of wealth and so much of the wealth is tied up into a, a population that right now they are making planned gifts um or they're they're considering mortality and and they're they're lining up the quest that they plan on on giving away at at some point in time but you're absolutely right these organizations especially those that you know are less than a million dollars less than two million dollars a year um and they all of a sudden now have gone like this organization i was telling you about all special events all these sorts of things now they actually have a pretty healthy endowment right three times their operating budget or more Mm -hmm. and they're that kind of changes their funding makeup from you know, special events to now we can invest in the infrastructure potentially to build other revenue streams, but certainly um, an endowment. And really the board has to figure out, well, what are we going to do with this endowment? Because, um, or kind of a quasi endowment, what are we going to do with all this money now um, that the donor didn't put any stipulations on the use of it? So it's a really weird, um, if you have a strategic plan, a huge um, bequest like that will absolutely change the trajectory of that, of that um, strategic plan. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, well, and you make a good point too, which is that not all or nonprofits will accept all types of assets, right? And so right, if a donor right. is is giving, like you said, jewelry or something like that, and the nonprofit they want to give it to can't accept jewelry or won't accept jewelry, that's a problem, right? And and the donor's mm-hmm. going to want to know that about that beforehand, and certainly the organization is too, so that they can plan accordingly. 
Absolutely. And and I've seen all kinds of things from rights to an oil field to, like I said, jewelry, real estate, vehicles, um, really interesting investments, like investments in partnerships or LLCs or, you know, those sort of things like for-profit business interest and those sort of things. And of course, we know all of the other common, you know, suspects like stock and cash and things like that. That's great. Um, but it is really important for organizations to have that lined up, especially, you know, to our conversation, if you're going to talk to a donor, try to go through the process of figuring out what gifts can you accept and, and kind of thinking about it from a risk perspective, you know, this jewelry is extremely valuable. I think uh, close to several hundred thousand dollars is that I wouldn't want that locked up in my office. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not suggesting that you do that. So you know, these individuals that are planning their estates generally work with financial advisors like yourself, David, certainly attorneys, certainly um, CPAs, likely if there's some tax planning or other sorts of things going on there. And there's a whole team of professionals. And I think sometimes development directors don't know who to form the relationship with or who to have the conversations with. From your perspective, should the development director go and try to coordinate and collaborate with the team that has been hired by this donor, or should they be going straight to the donor and having the conversation? So both, they should start with the donor and they should ask the donor first who that they should be talking to, right? Because some Mm. donors will work very closely with their accountant. Some will work very closely with their attorney. Some will work very closely with their financial planner. um, And that's going to vary from person to person. So you need to know who that person is. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, but, one way to think about this is that the easiest way to get a client to give a bequest is to just have them change their beneficiaries on a retirement plan or an insurance mm-hmm. policy, but also the best way to make sure that a nonprofit will, will either never receive any funds or will receive substantially less than was intended from that donor after their death is to just have them change their beneficiaries on a retirement plan or insurance policy, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so sometimes the thing that is easy is the thing that's the least likely to actually actually be effective in the long run. Mm, and mm. if I can give you an example uh, of why that might be the case, let's look at the example of naming beneficiaries on an IRA. So mm. let's say hypothetically, one of your donors wants to give 10% of her wealth to your organization after her death. And mm-hmm. her, let's say her pre-tax traditional IRA currently makes up about half of her net worth. So that way, all she has to do is she just names your organization as the 20% beneficiary of that account and you're done, right? Easy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, except unless your donor dies relatively soon, there's a decent mm-hmm. chance that her IRA will make up a smaller share of her net worth in the future between required minimum distributions, qualified charitable distributions, maybe some Roth IRA conversions and tax efficient asset location. And if you don't know what any of that stuff means, you don't need to just know that it will, that those things will usually reduce your traditional IRA balance relative to your other forms of wealth. Um, But it wouldn't be at all unusual for someone's IRA to fall from half of their net worth to less than a quarter of their net worth over a period of 20 years. So if that happened in this hypothetical, then 20% of her IRA would only be worth 5% of her net worth rather than the 10% she intended. So so that's obviously bad for the nonprofit, but it's also bad Mm -hmm. for the donor and her family, given that her wishes weren't fulfilled, right? So a much better way of accomplishing the goal of leaving 10% of your net worth to a charity at your death would be to state that desire in your trust and then make sure that your trust either owns or is the beneficiary of all of your assets. Uh, And of course, updating a trust document is more time consuming and expensive than just updating the beneficiaries on your IRA, but the odds Mm -hmm. that the intended outcome will take place go up substantially, which is why it's so important to have all the donors, professional advisors involved, particularly when you're talking about a large gift. 
Um, and, and then in this case, in this example that I gave, you know, their financial advisor, somebody like me might point out the potential shortcomings of just changing the beneficiaries and their estate mm -hmm. planning attorney would perform the work of actually making sure the tr trust is updated properly. Um, mm -hmm. Now, to be clear, I get that there's a, a mismatch in incentives here. As, as a fundraiser, what are the odds you're going to still be at your current nonprofit when this donor dies? What, what are the odds you'll right. still be working at all, right? Um, so obviously, that all depends on the donor's age, the donor's health, your age and stage of career. But regardless, I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of estate gifts are collected long after the development officer who solicited, solicited them has left the organization right. for one reason or another. Right. So given that fact, why would you want to spend the extra effort necessary to work with a donor's professional advisors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you might think that getting a donor's professional advisors involved would increase the time uh, you spend and reduce the size of the gift you ultimately bring in. Uh, but in my experience, the opposite of this is true. And that's the case for, for three reasons, primarily, right? So number one, mm -hmm. the donor is likely to feel more confident in their decision if it's been vetted by their advisors. And more confidence mm -hmm. not only leads to larger gifts, but it also leads to less foot dragging, right? Um, mm -hmm. Number two, it's possible that the donor's advisors will actually suggest strategies that will minimize the donor's tax burden, thus leaving more money available for donation. And then number three, it's possible that the donor's advisors will point out that their capacity to give is actually greater than they realize. So in addition, maybe to getting an estate gift, you might also get a gift in the here and now because their donors, their advisors have pointed out, hey, actually, if you want to just write a check right now, you can. Uh, and right. so obviously that won't impact you as the fundraiser in the short run necessarily. But if you believe in your organization's mission, then it's in everybody's best interest to maximize the donor's bequest and thus their impact. Mm -hmm. You said a lot of things in there. And I think my biggest <laughs> yeah. takeaway is to understand, and it's interesting because I'm pretty somewhat understandable about this because I just put a, a whole, a whole uh, trust together for my, my own self and my own personal life. Um, I have a minor child. So thinking about all of those things. And, and I think what you're describing for those that aren't familiar with state trust and those sorts of things, it's essentially in the way I would describe it, kind of an umbrella. And everything you own belongs to the trust rather than like piecemealing all of these different investment accounts and your retirement accounts and your life insurance and those in your the value of your car, you know, if there's a value to that or your homes and all the different properties that you might have, maybe you have a rental property somewhere and all of these things are just kind of lingering out there individually. Um, I think what you're describing is, you know, hopefully your organization or your, your donor, your potential donor has a trust and the trust is owned by, owns all of those all those assets, right? So that whenever the donor passes on and says, I want 50% of my assets to go to the organization, it's much easier from the attorney's perspective, the financial advisor's perspective, and all of the beneficiaries of that to say, okay, let's look at the trust. Let's look at the umbrella. What is the umbrella own? Divide that you know, in half and, and that benefits the organization. And interestingly, you can usually get some sort of trust document that outlines what the specific assets are that's going yep. to make up your percentage. So what you were saying, David, earlier, um, and I just want to kind of come back to that to make sure it's really clear for all of the listeners that, um, you know, you were talking about the percentage of net wealth. So for example, if, if, if at this point in time, a donor had say, just a retirement account, that's all they had. And they said, I'm going to leave everything to my um, favorite charity, right? And five years later, like, I'm going to get in the real estate business, and I'm going to purchase a bunch of real estate and some rental properties. And then that became, you know, the majority of their wealth, because they lived in, say, Austin, Texas, and it's a red hot market, right? And now they're mega wealthy because of the real estate, right? But they never left the um, assets of the real estate part of their life 
anywhere in the nonprofits world. It goes to their kids or it goes to whoever, I don't know, their church, who knows, I don't know. Um, well, now the idea that the donor said, I want everything left to my charity, but I didn't name the charity in any of that. I didn't address that issue. Well, all of that would be taken care of with the trust, right? Generally, if it's updated and all the assets are added to. So it's really important for donors to put all of their assets into a trust. And that's a whole other financial planning, um, <laughs> which I'm sure, uh, David, you can talk much more about that than I can. But it's we really interesting to know that, yeah. <laughs> what kind of gifts, like what kind of vehicle, because if it is in a trust or it is simplified in that way, from your perspective, not necessarily the donor's perspective, because they have to hire lots of professionals to make that happen. There's usually a document and that document is really important because you can then as the organization take that, keep it in your files and know that you're the beneficiary. And if it's set up a certain way, meaning irrevocable, meaning the organization or the donor cannot change their mind on that, then it actually goes on the books as an asset to your nonprofit organization. And when it gets on the books, what I like about it from the accountant's perspective, you, the CEO might leave, you, the development director might leave, all the board members might turn over. It's still on the books. And somebody has to look at that each year when they do your tax return, or if they go through an audit or something like this, they still have to ask themselves, what in the world is this thing out there? So it's really hard to forget about it. And I can't tell you um, how many organizations, I, I used to work with this faith-based organization, and every time they turn around, they were the beneficiary of a bequest that they were named in an estate, all of the things that were described to you, and they never had any idea. They had no idea. So, yeah. and the way that it was set up, it should have been on the organization's books years ago, but they just know about it. Right. You, can't, you can't put something on there you don't know about. So by just having those open and honest conversations um, with your donors and understanding what types of gifts and how difficult can it be? And is there a situation that that changes, right? Whether the donor can change their mind, who knows? I get, I'm not an attorney, but maybe it gets contested in a will. You know, um, my rich aunt give everything to the Humane Society. That's actually a real story. Um, and her kids and siblings are like, what the heck? You know, what about us? Um, so things like that happen, right? And, and just kind of understanding where your organization lies and all of that. So that's been really what helpful, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's all the stuff that we just talked about is why it's good for development officers and fundraisers to have some familiarity with these types of, uh, of, uh, of uh, planning techniques. Like what mm -hmm. is a trust? How do retirement accounts work? You don't need to know as much as I do, uh, obviously, but, but having right. some familiarity with it will have you, will allow you to have an intelligent conversation with donors about those types of things. Um, and, and also allow you to interact with their professional advisors um, on those topics. Yeah. And David, that brings up a great point because I think immediately my fundraising friends, they're really, really great and talented at what they, what they do. Um, but when it comes to understanding things like complex budgets or tax credit programs or, um, different incentives or planned giving, it just kind of gets a little overwhelming. Do you have any tools or resources? I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. If somebody is out there listening and either looking into this career and going into development director, or maybe you're a CEO and you're like, I, if, if my staff need to know about it, I certainly need to know about it too, because I'm usually along on those conversations. Do sure. you have a good resource where people can go to kind of get a crash course on things? Like I said, I know more about this. Most people think I'm a CPA and I must just, I'm, I just come out of university knowing these things. That's not true. Um, right. All of the personal financial stuff, I know because of my own personal like <laughs> right. work that I've hired professionals to do, it doesn't really come across in the course of my work or my education. So a lot of this stuff, and probably even you too, David, I mean, so many of these vehicles change, um, you know, 
different planning tools can become available. How does somebody, for one, get just briefed on some of this stuff? And then do you have any recommendations for where people can stay um, up to date at a very high level on, on trends and changes and, and what might impact people's plan giving? Uh, so the short answer is I don't have any specific resources other than Google, which is fantastic uh, for, for, uh, for staying up to date specifically on those types of uh, planning techniques in a way that would make sense for somebody who doesn't do it full time. Um, but uh, two things I can think of. Number one would be subscribe to the Chronicle of Philanthropy and get their mm -hmm. daily emails with uh, what's going on in the world, because typically they will have articles on the big uh, sweeping changes that people need to know about. Uh, and, and they'll mention those in the course of their various reporting. If you, if you are looking to get uh, a more in-depth understanding of how some of these planning technique techniques work, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a chartered advisor in philanthropy. That is a designation that you can get from the American College for Financial Services. And, um, and a lot of people would think, well, isn't that for financial advisors? And it can be, but I think there's roughly 2,500 caps, they call them chartered advisor and advisors in philanthropy in the country. Mm -hmm. And and I think the breakdown is roughly 50-50 between fundraisers mm -hmm. and uh, professional advisors in terms of who actually has the designation. So um, oh, it, uh, yes, so it, it, part of their curriculum is covering uh, the, the more complex planning tools. And mm -hmm. you don't need to be an expert in this stuff. That's what the experts are for. But having uh, some general familiarity about how it works it would be really useful to you. And, and the CAP program would provide that uh, if you're willing to, to go through the, the study program. Well, that's, that's really helpful. And when all else fails, um, YouTube. I mean, it's amazing to <laughs> me. And, and David's probably like, no, don't do YouTube. No. Um, consult with your professional <laughs> advisors um, before you just roll out this whole plan. But one of the things that I really love about learning something that's completely foreign to me is simply going to YouTube, searching like what are the different, I, I, I don't know, just whatever some of the topics that, that we've kind of mentioned here, um, different retirement options or what is the different ways plan giving. And, and, and you can, what, what I love about it is you can actually watch multiple people explain the same topic, different ways, different styles that you can start piecing together and really better understand these things. So I, I will confess, I do that, um, especially a lot on like digital marketing and and those sort of things are websites and coding. I'm like, I don't even know what this stuff is. I went to business school, not IT. Uh, and, and so I will do just that. Um, I will watch multiple different types of videos around a similar topic. And at least helps me have more of a conversation because I've heard multiple yes. people talk about it in different ways. So, um, but certainly David, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you specifically, whether working with their organization or maybe it's a donor that's interested in having more of a conversation about you know, what this plan giving can look like or you know how they can start distributing some funds now or anything like that what is the best way people can get a hold of you yeah or well, you can go to my website which is gatewaywealthstl.com uh, you can email me at david at gatewaywealthstl.com uh, you can give me a call at 314-349-2711. If you do go to my website, there's a there's a scheduling tool on there. There's a little button that says talk with David. And if you click on that, it pulls up my schedule. You can schedule a quick call with me if you have any questions or there's anything you want to talk about. And of course, again, you can email me uh, with any questions or if you're interested in uh, financial advice generally or philanthropic advice, uh, that's what I'm here for. 
sounds great. David, again, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. And for anybody else, um, feel free to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Anchor, any other um, areas. And speaking of YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel where we put different segments of our shows on YouTube for you to be able to watch um, at leisure. And uh, check in with us on our next episode. Thank you all so much for joining us. Bye now.